Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we entrain your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Scopus Award runner-up Shilin Wang talks about generating power from wastewater. But first up, the science of storytelling. story. Researchers at Princeton University in New Jersey have found that as you listen to a story being told, your brain's activity starts to synchronise with the brain activities of the storyteller. They found that the better the listener understood the story, the more closely the patterns of brain activity mirrored those of the storyteller. They used a functional magnetic resonance imager, fMRI, to record brain activity from both speakers and listeners during natural verbal communication. Functional MRI records blood flow in the brain, which indicates which parts are being used at any time. They found the brain activity of the listeners mirroring the brain activity of the speakers, except when communication failed. The mirroring of brain activity in listeners was usually just slightly behind the brain activity of the storyteller, but sometimes the listener was ahead indicating that they predictively anticipated what came next. For the first experiment, they recorded the brain activity of a speaker telling an unrehearsed real-life story, and the brain activity of a listener listening to a recording of the story. The speaker had to be trained to keep their head still in the fMRI cradle, and they had to use an optically-based microphone to get past noise from the scanner. They played the recording to the listener as they sat in the fMRI scanner. They saw a matching up between areas of the brain associated with various production and comprehension language processes, the mirror neuron system, and areas of the brain associated with the processing of the meaning and social aspects of the story. They also saw this matching across people who listened to the same story. For the next experiment, they had a storyteller speak in Russian, to listeners who didn't understand Russian. The brain areas didn't match up between speaker and listener. Between listeners, only the parts involved in hearing sounds matched up. Finally, they had the speaker tell another story from their life and compared the speaker's brain signals to those from listeners from the first experiment, where they heard a completely different story. The brain activity didn't match up showing that it was understanding the story being told that caused the mirroring of the brain activity. I think it'd be interesting to follow up with a live storytelling session, where you have the storyteller and the listeners in MRI scanners at the same time. My guess is that in a live performance, you would change the way you tell the story based on how you see your audience reacting. And this would lead to even stronger matching of brain activity. So when you're telling that story, you aren't just relating some facts, 
you're entraining the brain of your listener so that their brain's activities match your brain's activities more closely. All just through the medium of words. The paper was titled Speaker-Listener Neural Coupling Underlies Successful Communication and was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Thanks to NPR's Health Shots for bringing the story to my attention. A story of refusal to admit defeat. A story of gallant men and women who kept faith and who molded the universal dream of a better life into reality through your product here. The living symbol of our national heritage and whose contributions to the betterment of mankind will never be forgotten. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Cleaning wastewater uses lots of energy. But what if you could recover some energy from the wastewater itself? Shiling Wang is a senior lecturer at the Centre for Technology in Water and Wastewater at the University of Technology, Sydney. Shilin was runner-up for the Scopus Young Researcher Award for his work on generating power from wastewater. I began by asking Shilin, how do you generate energy from wastewater? That's a good question, actually, because wastewater treatment actually consumes lots of energy. But at the same time, wastewater also contains lots of energy. For the time being, the wastewater treatment plant actually is trying to do anaerobic slash digestion to convert some organics in the wastewater into the biogas. So in that case, we can get the energy, actually transform the waste into energy. But for the time being, actually, this conversion efficiency is, is low. Only a small fraction of the organics can be converted to biogas. That means that only a small fraction of organics can be converted to energy. What I'm doing, actually, is to try to maximize the energy recovery from the wastewater. So in that case, it has a potential to transform the costly energy-consuming wastewater treatment plants into the energy generators. That's my long-term goal in the future. And this biogas, is that methane? The biogas actually consists of uh, methane and carbon dioxide. But uh, generally speaking, we can use that in the wastewater treatment plant, we can uh, use that methane to convert it to electricity, to convert it to heat. And uh, electricity can be used uh, that in the wastewater treatment plant itself. The heat can also be used in the wastewater treatment plant to heat some uh, reactors that need heating. And also, for instance, in some cold areas, the heat can also be used to heat the, the buildings nearby. So. And are you burning the gas? Yes, for that biogas, actually, they, they call combined heat and power generation. They use this type of uh, technology to convert the biogas into heat and electricity. That's uh, currently the wastewater treatment plant is doing for the time being. And it's carbon neutral because it's the decay of the waste products. Yes, actually, the, the, the long-term goal actually is to achieve the carbon neutral with the treatment plants. But for the time being, actually, we, we, can, we still cannot achieve that because uh, we still need plenty of 
external input, uh, electricity input into the waste treatment plant. But uh, in the long term, if we can maximize the energy recovery from the wastewater, maybe that will come true in the future. I'm actually, I'm confident about that. The wastewater, once all the, the organics are put out to sea or wherever they're, they're usually dumped, they decay and release these gases normally anyway, don't they? And they're just wasted. Generally speaking, for instance, for the wastewater, because in the wastewater treatment plant, they have already they have already converted the organics, most of, majority of the organics, into carbon dioxide. So, in that case, if we discharge the wastewater into the sea or into the river, it won't produce lots of carbon dioxide. But one, in addition to wastewater, actually, in the wastewater treatment plant, they, they will also produce lots of waste. That waste in the wastewater treatment plant, we, we call it waste activity sludge. That actually is a type of waste. But for this type of waste, if we do not handle it properly, when we dispose them, maybe it will produce lots of carbon dioxide. So currently we separate the sludge from the water and the water goes out to sea or to, to a river. But what happens to the sludge normally? For the sludge, actually, in different countries, they will have different outlet. For instance, in Australia, generally speaking, for this type of sludge, the majority of them actually goes to agriculture. I think it's uh, around 30, uh, 75% in whole Australia actually can be used for agriculture reuse. That's the final goal. That's, that's the goal actually in Australia. Uh, in addition to that, I think also there's organic, there are some also some uh, waste uh, maybe used. This excess sludge can be used for other purposes. And so is it the sludge that you're using to make the biogas? Uh, yes, the sludge, actually, the sludge actually consists of bacteria. So we call it active sludge because it's active. So in order to produce biogas, actually, one way is we use the sludge to, to produce biogas. That's actually what I did. Another way is that in addition to use the sludge to produce biogas, actually, we can also use the wastewater to produce biogas directly because actually... The sludge actually is come from the wastewater treatment. I think in some wastewater treatment plant, uh, for instance in Melbourne, I think there are some wastewater treatment plants that just do some anaerobic lagoon. Uh, that type of anaerobic lagoon actually can convert uh, organics in the wastewater into the biogas directly. So an anaerobic lagoon is where you've got the wastewater before it's drained of the sludge and there's no oxygen, that's the anaerobic part? Yes, anaerobic lagoon actually is the anaerobic part. They just uh, convert the organics in the wastewater to the, to the biogas. But in that case, if it's only anaerobic, because it can only remove organics. But in wastewater, they also have uh, nitrogen, phosphorus. If we do not remove them, maybe it will uh, cause some issues in the, in the rivers. Uh, then, but after that, after anaerobic lagoon, I think we still need to to use some technologies, for instance, aerobic reactor to remove these other nutrients. What are you doing with the wastewater yeah. to generate the biogas? Actually, the, the, they are based on the same principle as the sludge. Wastewater, because they have plenty of organics, they just put them in the anaerobic conditions. There are some plenty of anaerobic microorganisms. So the anaerobic microorganism actually can convert that organics in wastewater into biogas. And then after that, we just collect that biogas and then for our, for the beneficial use. So you can have partially self-powered 
wastewater treatment plants? Yes, definitely. It depends on how much energy we can we can recover from the wastewater. If we can recover large amounts of energy, we can definitely we can have uh, half powered or even zero energy uh, wastewater treatment or even energy positive wastewater treatment. That's all possible. It depends on what technologies we are using, and yeah, it depends on the progress of the technology. And what inspired you to start this project? Actually, because I'm working in the wastewater treatment field for a long time, I, I know that actually wastewater treatment uh, actually consumes large amounts of energy. That's, I think also energy is uh, quite important for, the, for Australia and also for the whole world. So that's why actually I, I want to work on this topic, on this energy, uh, energy recovery, uh, energy topic. That's one thing. But in addition to energy, actually, I also, for the time being, I'm also working on some other topics related to wastewater, for instance, uh, antibiotic-resistant genes, that's also an emerging topic, and also some long-term problems in wastewater treatment plants, for instance, sludge bulking, it will affect the wastewater treatment performance and also membrane uh, folding in the, uh, in the water reuse. Uh, that's also some other topics I'm working for the time being. So what other fields are you also working on? Actually, in addition to energy recovery from wastewater, I'm also working on several other fields related to wastewater treatment. Uh, one thing is uh, antibiotic-resistant genes. Uh, because it's a very it's an emerging uh, issue in the wastewater treatment because it can maybe it can affect the public health. That's one topic actually currently I'm working on. And also I'm working on the slush bulking because it can affect the wastewater treatment performance. It's also a long-term, uh, long-term issue in wastewater treatment plants. And also I'm working on the membrane folding, uh, how to remove the, the, the folding from the membrane, the membrane technology. That's also one work I'm working on. And also actually in addition to this engineering part, I'm also quite interested in the microbiology part. My interest actually is to develop sustainable technologies to address the wastewater treatment problems. But actually, in order to support these technologies, uh, I also need to do some fundamental research to, to understand the, te- the, the mechanism behind these technologies. In that case, I can do some optimization for these technologies. Uh, therefore, I, I'm also working on some uh, fundamental microbiology part, for instance, metagenomics, metatranscription, cryptomics, meta-proteomics, this type of things, that's also my uh, interest. I have already worked on those uh, areas maybe for almost one year. I've already got some uh, uh, skills in, in those part. So, Chi Ling, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you, Yin. Thanks for uh, interviewing me. It's my pleasure to have a chat with you. That was Scopus Award runner-up, Chi Lin Guang from the Centre for Technology in Water and Wastewater at the University of Technology, Sydney. Generating electricity from wastewater. And finally, here's Lachlan Watmore from deep within the Diffusion Archives telling us the story of that pioneer of microbiology, Louis Pasteur.
If anyone could be called a giant of 19th century science, it would be Louis Pasteur. Not only did he push microbiology into the modern age, he also made groundbreaking discoveries in chemistry and brought about a small revolution in education and the scientific method itself. However, it was in the infant discipline of microbiology that he made the contributions by which we remember him. Louis Pasteur, as the name suggests, was a Frenchman. He was born in the town of Doule in eastern France into a family of tanners. He started getting good results in school from the beginning and had earned his PhD in physical sciences at the relatively young age of 25. The very next year, he announced the findings of his first discovery to the Paris Academy of Sciences, a finding for which he is not usually remembered but easily counts as one of his most groundbreaking. He reported to the Academy that two acids, tartaric acid and racemic acid, had identical chemical constituents and compositions, but behaved in radically different ways. One of them, when dried into salt crystals, rotated plain polarised light to the left, and the other acid, in the same state, rotated it to the right. Furthermore, one could be used as food by microorganisms, while the other was left alone. And yet the chemical formulae of the compounds remained identical to each other. Pasteur, in a brilliant mental leap, realised that the shape, not just the composition, of the two molecules was important, and that while the type of atoms and their ratios to each other might stay the same, the arrangement of those atoms in three-dimensional space must be different, hence the differences in physical properties. In doing so, he invented stereochemistry, which is the study of three-dimensional properties of chemical compounds. However, given that we all open cartons of milk with the word pasteurised printed on them, it is for microbiology that Pasteur is best remembered. In 1854, he was made dean of a new science faculty at the University of Lille, where he received a request to investigate the process of fermentation. He soon discovered that fermentation was caused by microorganisms such as yeast, and that fermenting media such as grain or potato do not ferment all by themselves. He demonstrated this finding by injecting milk with various microbes, which made it go sour. In those days, some people still believed in spontaneous generation, which is the belief that life can simply create itself in, say, a bottle of milk, where there was none before, a small genesis. These days, such a concept seems laughable, but given that before Pasteur there was no satisfactory explanation as to why lactic or alcoholic fermentation occurred, belief in spontaneous generation is quite understandable. After all, milk goes off, doesn't it? And I didn't see anybody put something in the bottle. Pasteur, in a series of simple experiments, proved that it was the exposure of these substances to air and the microorganisms floating in it that caused them to putrefy. Once he'd done this, he put this newfound theory to the work in the preservation of wine and vinegar, which were both important to France's economy. It was at this stage that he invented pasteurisation, the heating of wine, vinegar, milk and other perishable liquids to kill harmful microbes and enable them to have longer shelf lives. The British were particularly grateful for his discoveries because now they could transport good English beer all the way to India without fear of its deterioration. From fermentation, Pasteur then turned his attention to disease. He single-handedly saved the French silk industry from ruin by identifying two sources of pathology in silkworms and formulating procedures to prevent further contagion. From there, he developed an interest in vaccination, influenced by the Englishman Edward Jenner, who had used cowpox to inoculate against smallpox. The scientific name for cowpox is vaccinia, hence the word vaccine. 
Through his heating methods, Pasteur was able to produce a weakened or attenuated cultures of various pathogens, not virulent enough to cause disease, but still recognisable to the immune system and therefore the cause of an immune response. His first success was the inoculation of a herd of sheep against anthrax, which was followed by the protection of chooks from chicken cholera. The incredible thing is that in those days, people knew almost nothing about immunity. Pasteur had observed that chooks who had survived chicken cholera never got it again, and in another great mental leap, reasoned that such immunity was the result of exposure to the pathogen, not an innate quality. This was truly inspired independent thinking, particularly given that Darwin's evolutionary theory had just become public and scientists everywhere were talking in terms of innate characteristics and the death-driven mechanism called natural selection. really love that bit. In 1885, Pasteur, using his new technique, cured a young boy of rabies. After working on dried tissue samples from rabid dogs, he developed a vaccine for the disease using attenuated virus particles. Three years later, the Pasteur Institute was founded with its namesake, naturally, at its head. By this stage, glory and honours had been heaped on the man from far and wide, and Pasteur didn't shrink from it, knowing full well his national worth as well as his achievements. However, ill health had dogged him for many years, and he died in 1895 at the age of 73. Pasteur just didn't excel in science. He made several innovations in education. While at Lille, he instituted evening classes for the industrial workers of the town and made sure his science students got out into the fields and factories and got their hands dirty in the pursuit of knowledge. He favoured the field over the laboratory and demonstrated time and again the close relationship between theory and practice. So next time you crack open a carton of milk, remember the late, great, big Louis Pasteur, a man who saved lives, opened minds and exemplified la grandeur de la France. And now to take us out, some music written by a German. Thank you, Lachlan Watmore. They had it easy in the Renaissance. They could invent new branches of science over lunch. But nowadays we work more incrementally. No one's naming any new elements after us Cos we'll do a little bit, that's how we do research There's teams all around the world doing these little bits of work We only do a little bit, but it's always for the best Every great leap forward takes a lot of little steps Isn't very glamorous We won't make a world-shattering breakthrough We might find an explanation For gravitic oscillation But I somehow doubt you'll hear it on the news Cos we'll do a little bit But it's a little bit of good And compared to working for a bank That little bit's enough Together turn into a lot Like the movement of tectonic plates That slowly change the planet Like the tiny grains of sand that swallow 
MJ Hibbert and the Validators with A Little Bit. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? 
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.